everybody, this is Emily Nagoski and Amelia Nagoski, and you're listening to the Feminist Survival Project 2020. It's a podcast for anyone who believes that being a woman is neither a moral failing nor a medical problem, who happens to be overwhelmed and exhausted by everything they have to do, yet still worry they're not doing enough. Today's topic is art, so I, Amelia, I'm going to be leading this one unusually. Um, so we're going to talk about creative self-expression. It's a way of completing the stress response cycle and is good for us in a lot of ways. So today we're gonna to break down uh, what those ways are, why art works, and hopefully help you harness your creativity as a survival strategy for getting through the shit show that is 2020. Oy. Yeah. So um, there is actually a solid body of research uh, for all kinds of creative self-expression interventions and therapeutic applications for art in terms of painting, drawing, sculpting, but also writing, drama, making music. There's a lot of support demonstrating that art works. Um, so there is some research that breaks down what they think the reasons are. And one of those things is recognizing emotion. Uh, when we make stuff, either writing a thing down, planning how a painting's going to look, in drama theory, they do mirror exercises. And also when we are in the audience, either reading a book or witnessing a dramatic production, we are recognizing that emotion is real. And that in itself is step one to completing the stress response cycle and feeling validated as human beings. It's step one, feelings are real. Step one, feelings are real. And making art makes us understand that, helps us understand that it's true. For me, I learned how to be a human being on the podium before I learned how to be a human being in the real world. Uh, and one of the reasons that's true is because I was explicitly taught that there is emotion in music. And I kind of had to be convinced that that was real. And yet it, re it, it worked for me. And did you have any, you already intuited your way into like, yeah. you already knew emotions were real. Yeah. Did you find it validating at all? Like you're, you're a creative self-expression. You've done theater. Mm -hmm. You've done uh, writing. Mm -hmm. You've been in musical ensembles mm -hmm. your whole life. Yep. Are, are any one of those? Like, dance. Most, dance. That's right, of course. Was any of that the most like effective way for you? Like was Dance, I think because of the combination of art stuff and physical activity. Yeah. I think dance might have been the most effective these days. Writing yeah. is the most effective. But Just we had that one time in high school when, uh, so this was long before you understood that feelings were real. Yeah. And uh, I was like, I'm entitled to my feelings. But I was also, you know, 14, right. which means that I was just like spraying my feelings all over everybody. Like, like hippo poop. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly like that. Yeah. Just everywhere. And instead of like, um, so we were at these two extreme positions on emotions. And you literally said to me, you can't just go around feeling your feelings. <laughs> and I was like, I'm pretty sure I can. I'm pretty sure I received explicit instruction that said you're not allowed to go around feeling your feelings. I'm totally sure you did. I'm, I was just repeating what I understood right. to be true from it the facts that were available to me at the time. Not that I wasn't taught the same thing. It was the mantra of my childhood. Cork it, Emily. Cork it. Put cork a lid it. on it. I know. I know. I know. Didn't work. I, and I was just like, how come you can't just cork it? Just fucking cork it. Yeah. Couldn't. Yeah. No. Okay. So recognize that emotions are real. That was key for me. So if you are in any doubt that like... Hmm, maybe my feelings are real. Or if you're not sure what your feelings are, you can't articulate them, working through feelings in uh, a creative way, either through painting an emotional painting or writing an emotional story, not for consumption by an audience, 
necessarily, or even probably, just to allow you to go through the process. That can be a way you can reach the making truth. itself. The making itself. The process just shows us, this is what my feelings are. Oh my God, I didn't even know I had that feeling in me. You know what? That's the part that I had, but I didn't have the next step of like sharing and connecting with people during those feelings. Yes. I very much had the experience of like going to my room to be alone yes. to do the feeling. Yes. So the the doing of the thing can help you recognize the emotion. And then the next step is that the making of the thing is an outlet for the emotion. As we know, emotions are not supposed to stay in your body. You're supposed to complete the cycle and you're supposed to allow them to come out. And so as an emotional outlet, making things is a place, a safe place where you can put those feelings. Writing a story about um, a girl who goes through a traumatic event and comes out the other side stronger for having gone through it. Or even just reading a story about a girl who goes through a traumatic event and comes out the other side stronger for having gone through it. That is an outlet for that emotion. You go physically through the physiological cycle of that emotion and you get to just be done with it. You take it out of your body and put it someplace safe. You made a thing. You made a thing. And I think what happens is that especially because a lot of us, including us, are taught that uncomfortable negative feelings are inherently dangerous. Like it's unsafe for you or the people around you to feel those feelings. When you feel those feelings in the context of creating something, when you're putting the feeling somewhere, it makes them safe. Yes. There's also the idea that when you have especially negative feelings or even positive feelings that are too strong, that that's shameful Mm. and that you're not allowed to feel that. You shouldn't feel that. What's wrong with you? How dare you be so loud about your feelings? And again, the arts are a a loophole culturally where strong emotions are expected. Both what's the matter with you and how dare you. Yeah, how dare you. But you you put that in the context of the arts and you're supposed to. Yeah, now. If you can't do it, what's wrong with you? Yeah, that you go into the arts specifically to learn how to break down those barriers and to spend your energy in an outpouring way that entertains other people because they all live in a world where they're not allowed to have emotions. So they're happy to pay a ticket to go sit (laughs) in a chair and watch you have your emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you were happy to buy a ticket. Because society's weird. Because society's weird. So there's the recognizing that emotions are real and what they are. And then there's the having the experience of letting out those emotions. Mm -hmm. Both of these can happen both when we create Mm -hmm. and when we participate as audience members. Mm -hmm. And then there's a really specific therapeutic Mm -hmm. way of approaching this, which is remapping past experiences. And in psychodrama therapies, this is a lot of times the way that it works, where you're role-playing a past experience, either from your own point of view or from the point of view of another person who's in that experience with you. And you role-play with another person often what you could have said, what you would have said, what you today now would say. And It is a kind of way of rewriting history, but that's not how it has a positive impact on you just because you tell a story. This kind of therapy has shown to actually change people's moods, how people remember the past, how people feel about their memories of the past. When we experience a thing, our brains respond in a way you trigger a schema, 
which is a combination of uh, neurological, chemical, and electrical experiences. And our brains like to just revisit the same one they've already done before, because mm -hmm. that's way more calorie efficient. It takes way more energy to have a new schema, to invent a new combination of electrical and chemical signals. I often use the metaphor of pathways through a forest, like the path exists where people have often walked. Yeah. And to create a new path requires a knife, bushwhacking, a machete, yeah. and a good pair of boots. You have to like work really hard to get through a new pathway. Yeah. Um, and then you have to do it again and yeah. again and again. And you have to let time pass to let the trees grow back over the pathway yeah. that existed before. Yes. Like it's way more effortful to create a new path than it is to just follow the one that exists. Yeah. And storytelling, psychodrama therapy, yeah. is a way that sort of like candy coats the process of building new pathways. Yes. And it can be really enjoyable or it can be incredibly painful yes. to rethink a new way about those past experiences. Um, but it is actually not just painting a, a surface layer of pretty over top of a a past ugliness, mm -hmm. it is actually changing how your brain responds yes. to memories of that event. Yes. Um, or of a whole, you know, structure of events. Um, so remapping past experiences, uh, in addition to being an outlet for emotions and recognizing that emotions are real. A, a fourth one is being witnessed. And this is a thing that I never believed mattered <laughs> until <laughs> Me too. Very, very recently. Because again, we are trained to think that our emotions are shameful and negative ones are dangerous to other people. And when we say we, make, we mean we. We literally, we, we us, yeah. Yes, we, not right? everybody was. Not everybody. A lot, a lot of people, people are. Yeah. A lot of people think Which that, is why they find it such a useful thing to hear us talk about. And it is really true. It was wrong. <laughs> that in broader society, we have to be calm. We yes. have to be polite. We can't just throw a hissy fit whenever something doesn't go our way. Pro-social emotion regulation is a thing. It's good for the world if you don't cut somebody off in traffic just because you don't like the bumper sticker on the back of their car. Like, you just have to control that reaction. But that emotion has to go somewhere. And it's even better. It feels like an even better experience when it is witnessed. There is some research as to why the sense of witness is so powerful, but I'm going to talk about that when I talk about the next thing. But the idea of witness has been part of religious culture for millennia. Definitely in the Christian religion, the idea of witness, of sharing a burden to like a, a burden shared is not a burden doubled, it's a burden halved. Misery loves company. All these things are sayings that exist in our culture. So we know that having a witness to our feelings validates us, makes us feel seen, makes us feel heard, makes us feel understood, makes our feelings seem not just real, not just that they exist, not just that you poured it out of your body, not just that you came to an emotional understanding of a thing that is maybe good for you, but when it's seen by someone else for whatever reason, that just feels more valid. So insert the bubble of love episode here. Bubble of love, exactly. But it doesn't even have to be the bubble of love. It can literally be a room full of strangers. Yeah. I think it was... Because attachment. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. There's a... Inside the Actors Studio episode. Oh God, just Dustin Hoffman. I know Dustin exactly. Hoffman. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and uh, what's the interviewer's name? James Lipton. James Lipton asks about like why do we perform, and Dustin Hoffman leans over to him and just goes, "Look at me, look 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 at me." And there's a lot of actors who talk about the fact that they they need to like be looked at, they need to be seen, and that is not just a weird crazy actor thing. All of us need to be seen 
and heard and understood. And doing it on a stage is a way that's more valid and allowed. Because again, the arts are a cultural loophole. Can I tell a story? Please do. So about 10 years ago, I was Anna in The King and I. Mm -hmm. And that was a complicated experience. <laughs> um, I enjoy theater. I've always enjoyed doing acty stage stuff. Yeah, we were, which is why we I auditioned. Were in the King and I, we were in The King and I when, when we, we were little were kids. Like five, right. kindergarten, I think. So like it was so great to like yeah. work with the kids on stage. That was a very racist production we were in. It They're we, all we racist. We sprayed our hair black and put on like the eyeliner. a racist show. It was so racist. There's nothing to do about that. Anyway. Okay, anyway. With that being said, Let's just acknowledge our we were blocking the bows at the end of the show. And I asked Jerry, the guy who played. No, this is not that story. Oh, OK. I asked Jerry, the guy who was playing the king. So why do we bow? Yeah. <laughs> like, what's my motivation here? And he said to thank people for watching you. And I was like, OK. And I didn't say this out loud. But what I thought was, I am not doing this to be watched. I'm doing this to, like, have the experience on the stage and the moment with the other people here on the stage. Mm -hmm. And the other the audience is just sort of incidental for me. Mm -hmm. And what I realized in that moment <laughs> is that I'm a weirdo. Yeah. That is not most people's experience no. of acting. Yeah. That for me, the look at me connection comes from the people who are there playing pretend with me yeah. and not from the people who are watching me. I had, though a couple of moments where I was like in the middle of a production. And so, for example, in the scene where the king finally gives Anna her house, that was like the whole cast is on the stage. Everybody's singing except Anna. My job is just to react to what's going on. And there were, during that scene in particular, I'm looking right out of the audience. I can see them and hear them. And there was one night during the show when I like reacted to what was going on on stage and I heard people respond in that moment to me responding. They thought it was funny that I was like, what the, what are these people doing? <laughs> and there was uh, another night. It was at the, so like the, this is the end of act one, the lights go down, the curtain comes down and the audience like has a moment to applaud for the whole act and for that one scene. Right. And uh, like blackout applause and I heard it and I was like they mean it yeah they're excited yeah they were having a good time yeah. they're like in it yeah and they're like this is an interruption I'm gonna talk about how good I like it yeah no yeah yeah yeah. you're giving them feelings and they want to be like I want to show you how much I feel right now and Thanks it was the feelings. maybe my first ever experience of receiving yeah other people's appreciation for the experience they were having yeah that I was helping to create. Did you have that same response to um, at the end of your TED talk in Vancouver? Yeah. There was a spontaneous, instantaneous. Yeah, you were in the audience. Standing ovation. It was like you said, thank you. And it was like, whoosh, everyone to their feet. Thunderous applause. Did you have that same like appreciation of, oh, I did a thing for them and they're glad. A small one, yeah. A small, I did a thing for them. In but the it was a really big thing for me to be able to tell at all. Because I have, yeah. f five years before that, I stood in front of a smaller but more, like, intimate kind of group. Yeah. And got the same sort of, at the end of my talk, instantaneous, massive applause, mm -hmm. people on their feet. Yeah. And I looked at it and I was like, I know something important is happening right now. <laughs> But I don't, I, but I feel the barrier between me yeah. and that feeling. Yeah. So for me to get to a place where yeah. at the end of my TED talk, it's a thousand strangers. Right. For, for me to like feel it at all. Yeah. Was proof that I had grown. Yay. You felt it too, right? 
I wasn't because I no. worry that like I'm imagining it like no, it's a fantasy. I'm making I, it up. Because what I was thinking was like I hope she can tell that this is real and that this is bigger <laughs> than. I mean, I'd been in the audience for several talks. Yeah, and there was a lot of applause, but like that one was definitely. There's, there's also a lot of like bigger and and more standing ovations are sort of like standard operating procedure at TED. Right. Yeah. So no, it doesn't. This was not one of those. This like, was not and that. People, and now I stand. They were like brought to their feet by their energy. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that I like you noticed it because you weren't the one on stage trying to make it, and also because I'm I observe these things because I have yeah you're trained I'm trained like to be on know. stage and to recognize when do I bow and what's the energy of the audience right yeah. now and how long do I stand here and wait for so like, I worked between 2014 and 2018 when that talk happened mm-hmm. to be able to develop that skill to be able to sense it and it is a it's a learnable skill yeah I I did I learned it I'm like the least good at it of anyone I know yeah and I. I made it. Now, receiving applause is a very specific kind of skill that not everyone needs to learn in their lives. But being able to recognize. (laughs) But participating in the arts, man. But learning to recognize when you are being witnessed and why and when that feels good. And also recognizing when you are a witness, why that feels so amazing to see someone else go through this. And one of the reasons your, your talks are so strongly responded to is that you don't just give a lecture. You have all this dance and theater training and you're a writer. So you're interested in not just providing information to people, but telling a story. I and do want to an construct an experience. Journey. Yeah. Yes. You know that people actually, I mean, I don't know if this is shallow or manipulative, but you know that people learn better when they have an emotional experience. Yeah. And it also feels really good. They remember it better. Yes. They talk about it with other people, which is so important. And right. the kinds of things we teach, yes. we want people to talk, talk about, about it yes. with to the people like, they know. I had this experience and now I want to share what it was like because it was so big. And then now they have feelings and you're going to go give them a, a way to have an emotional oh. outlet about that feeling. So when you when you make something that makes people feel a thing, yeah. it causes other people to make things that out feels- of their th- thing. Yeah. So there's well, an right. artist in... Vermont, New, yeah, in New England, one of them <laughs> who made a wood cutting of me with my name, and it's specifically because she saw my TED talk. TED talk yeah, what about unwanted sexual arousal? Right. So when you make a thing that moves people, they will go ahead and make a thing yes, of their own, exactly, which will move other people. Yes, yes, and that's just good pedagogy. It's good <laughs> art, but it's also great teaching. Yeah, and it's yeah. good for everyone's mental health. Yeah. So, which brings us to our next and final reason that art is so good for people's health, and that is... Can you is, just recap, do a okay, The first one was recognizing... Repetition. Uh, one. Recognizing emotion, what it is, and, oh yeah, it's real. B, emotional outlet. Three, remapping past experiences. And D, D being witnessed. <laughs> I did that wrong. Okay, so those are the four ones that we've already talked about. And the last one we're going to talk about is group connection. This is very well established in choral music. There's actually a lot of research where they hook up singers to like heart monitors and brainwave scan thingies and they have them sing together. And we've seen that their heart rates sink, that their breathing sinks. Mm. And some of this is just due to the fact that they're physically moving in time together. They're singing in phrases together. So, of course, they have to breathe at the same time. But more than just mechanically breathing in the beat, they breathe together with a kind of subconscious awareness of their unity with these other people in the room with them, in the ensemble with them. And it turns out that's really good for your overall well-being, which is not a thing I would have believed when I was 21. No, me either. I knew that people liked it. 
And the other kids had this feeling of like family and I love the band. And this one time at band camp, this like transformative experience. That's not what that movie's about. But like still, it's a thing where people definitely know that the band geeks have this connection. And football teams have the same thing and all kinds of team sports create the same bond. But when you're making art together, I think that it's even more intense and even more powerful because you're creating a final product, because you're feeling your feelings together for the purpose just of feeling the feelings. Like there's no other goal to accomplish. The feelings are the goal, you know? Yep. Yeah. Um, so that sense of group connection is really good for your health. And this, all these like five things that we've talked about don't exist in little like bubble vacuums where that's the only thing that you're accomplishing right now. They're all interlocking and they happen in layers uh, intermixed with each other. But the sense of group connection is the sort of larger big picture that all of these other four things accomplish. So even if you're just writing for your own self, mm -hmm. that still, for a lot of people, feels them, makes them feel like they're connected to something larger than themselves because your feelings and your experiences might be pouring out onto this page. But what that's also doing is connecting you to a universal common humanity yes. that we all share. And in that moment of outpouring, you can sense that unity of all humanity, which is why art is, well, it's one of the many reasons why art is so valuable just to make, even if nobody ever consumes it. Now you have a story about writing where it was like an outlet mm -hmm. and it was a recognizing emotion and it was a remapping of a past experience. Yes. And you tell this story a lot. So it's also about being witnessed. Yes. So you want to tell God, that that's story? that's true. Yes. Yeah. So I did not think about it as being, here's the thing someone could witness at the time. But uh, so when I was working at a school, I had four students in a row come to appointments with me and tell me that they had been, hey, I'm going to put both pause right now and just do a little uh, content warning. I'm about to talk about a little bit of dark stuff. I'm going to do it pretty superficially, but feel free to skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear about anything. What, what the dark stuff is. Yeah, a little bit of dark stuff. So I had four students in a row tell me that they had been sexually assaulted. I was the first person they each of them had ever told. And my job in that moment was to make sure they got access to the resources they need to support them in their path to healing. And I did that. And I know for sure that every one of them was going to get access to the resources they need. And I felt really optimistic about the fact that they were going to find their way to healing and peace. And it was all like happy. But the fact is, I had received these really dark stories. And I have a lot of them that live in my body, countless. And uh, when I got home, I was still carrying these dark incomplete stories, right? These are not people who had achieved their happily ever after yet. These are people who were still in the middle of the dark hero's journey. So what I would do on a usual day like this is uh, like go for a run and then take a bath and my husband would bring me a glass of wine, <laughs> sort of apologetically. <laughs> But this Sorry time, <laughs> I had I had a I had a writing deadline. Um, so what I did was I sat down at my computer and I wrote the proposal. See, I write romance novels, so they all have a happily ever after. So I just skipped right to the end. I put my hero on his knees on a private beach at sunset, begging to deserve the heroine. 
right? Like I, and I could feel as I was writing all like the dark emotional stress stuff that had been activated by receiving these stories, I transformed it into, it was like a paper in the rain. It turned into this mush and I could use that paper to rewrite a brand new story. And I created in my own mind and body a world where men respect women and long to deserve them and connect with them as their deep, full selves, and where sex is pleasurable and consensual and, oh, here's a puppy here. (laughs) Hello, puppy. Where sex is pleasurable and consensual and a source of joy and confidence. um, And by the time I, and what this looks like on the outside (laughs) is me sitting in my computer, sobbing on my keyboard. And so it doesn't look great, but by the time I got (laughs) to the end of it, I could feel that my body had shifted in its chemistry. I'd completed the stress response cycle, purged the frustration and the rage and come to a place of peace and joy. I had made for myself the world I wanted to live in. And so now I tell that story as my example of how creative self-expression, even especially if you're not a professional artist, Helps you complete the stress response cycle. Yeah. yeah, I write romance as a hobby to help me feel sane and stable. Yeah. If you're listening now and you're like, I want to read that romance novel. It is called <laughs> How Not to Fall by Emily Foster. No, Emily it's, the, Foster. it's the second book, How oh, Not to Let Go. How it's Not a, to Let Go. It's a duology it's and the duology. happy ending comes at the end of the second so book. So you have to read both books in order and to get this. It is a story about my hero is a survivor of neglect and abuse as a child. So the whole second book is basically about his journey to healing and people who are themselves survivors of specifically childhood neglect. Like I get emails from people who are like, thank you so much. Oh, my God, I resonated so much with Charles's experience. And people who are not survivors of childhood neglect are like, why does it take Charles so long to realize he's not his father? And I was like, that's because that's how it goes. (laughs) But people who do, like the first thing he does is get his ass into therapy. And I've gotten emails from survivors of abuse and neglect who were like, thank you so much for putting your survivor hero into therapy. Yeah. Because hashtag real. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, yeah. And and hearing those stories actually is... Yes. Delightful. Being seen and heard that way. It's not the reason I write. No. But it's a bonus little gift. When people understand it, I'm like, those are my people. Yeah. Yeah. Cassandra Clare writes about the same thing. She gets emails from, she writes YA, uh, urban fantasy-ish. And uh, she gets emails. She has uh, characters of color. She has characters who are LGBTQIA. And she gets emails from young people reading her books saying, this is like the first time I've felt seen and heard because I'm not, I'm different from the standard population in this very specific way. And it's really gratifying for her to receive that and to feel like this work that I did is of value to someone and that I made them feel this thing that I that I wanted to feel too. Okay, um, so I wanna, I learned a new thing at a workshop with Bessel van der Kolk. Bessel van der Kolk is the author of Body Keeps the Score. If you have any interest in how trauma manifests in the body and what to do about it, please read Body Keeps the Score That's by the Bessel book. van der Kolk. Yep. I I've read it four or five times. I learned new stuff every time. Yeah. I attended a workshop with him a couple of years ago, and it was specifically in creative performing and creative self-expression methods for working through trauma. So there were songwriters, there were actors, there were uh, other kinds of musicians. It was great. It was, they did, um, they did uh, psychodrama therapy also. It was really cool. So I want to walk you through how one of the, one of the theatrical therapies went just a really short snippet of an excerpt to explain how this goes and why it does these five things we just talked about. 
So we're all the participants sitting as an audience watching one person on stage who is also a participant. And she's up there with an actor who is the, not therapist, but working in the therapeutic context. And the person who's a participant walks on stage not knowing anything. They just stand there and are about to have a therapeutic thing happen to them and they don't know. So the actor is there with, you know, script in hand and says the words to the participant. And she repeats the words to the rest of us who are participating as the audience. And they're the lines to a play. So I'm going to, it's two lines that I'm going to say to you. And then you're going to repeat them back. Oh, shit. Yeah. No, no, no. It's not. It's not. Okay. It's not I big. specifically chose not big things. Okay. Yeah. And it's, so it's very lightweight, but this is how it works. And if you can imagine being in the theater when someone does this, it's really great. So I say to you. For the record, I genuinely do not know what this is. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is Act 1, Scene 1 from King Lear. It's a, the first Jesus. two lines of a speech by Cordelia. Okay. So ready? Unhappy than I am. Sorry. Too big. Sorry. What is, what is King Lear about? It's about a daughter and her father. But this is just And only when she dies does he appreciate her. Okay, well, I didn't think about that. (laughs) I just wanted to, like... The first line is, unhappy that I am. Yes, unhappy that I am. Unhappy that I am. I cannot heave. I cannot heave. I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. Unhappy that I am. Unhappy that I am. How unhappy are you? Unhappy that I am. Unhappy that I am. I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. Is there anything that you ever had trouble saying to someone? I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. Isn't that amazing? Okay, sorry. That was maybe too big. (laughs) You could have picked a comedy. (laughs) No, you can't pick a comedy. It doesn't work the same way if it's a comedy. The whole point is to get a little bit uncomfortable. Do you want to do this again? No, well, do you want to like let this be what it is. I think that's what it is. Okay. Is so what happens is the actor reads the line, the participant repeats the line, and the actor prompts with, "Has there ever been a time when you? How unhappy are you?" Right. And they don't answer the question; they just repeat the line again, but now in this new context of having personalized. So it. you don't say the answer out loud; you just you just say think about the answer I and then say the line. Into my mouth. Yeah. While thinking about the time when you couldn't say the thing. Yeah. And what, what you, the words you're saying is the line, but the emotion that you're saying is, I remember that time when I couldn't. Right. And I thought this was a really good example. Why I picked this example is because it's about personal self-expression. Not being able to say your thing. Exactly. That's a good, there's multiple levels That's of meaning. That's so a, a good, good choice. choice. Sorry, it was a little big. <laughs> it was about a daughter and her death and her father. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. So sorry. Well, I thought, yeah. Well, fuck so intellectually, you. it was a good plan, but you can see how it works. And like to have like a whole. Because you put yourself into the story. You put yourself into the story. And the p- prompting questions dig in. Yeah. And say, surprise no, you. don't just superficially put yourself in there. Like, think about a time when. Yeah. How unhappy are you? Right. Which is literally what actors already do anyway. Yeah. Like, that's the training that actors receive. Um, which is why actors go through so much. I mean, so many actors are in therapy and um, their work is so much about feelings and and eliminating inhibitions and digging into something real. And it's one of the reasons acting is so therapeutic for lots of people. So that is recognizing that emotions are real. Because when I say, is there anything you ever, you know, haven't been able to say that you recognize in that moment? Yes, there freaking has. And I have heard about that. Because everybody has times when they haven't been able to say the thing. And then it's an outlet where you're actually saying the thing. I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. Just sharing that fact is powerful just to say out loud. And then it remaps the past experience because look, 
This time you're doing it. You are heaving your heart into your mouth. You're doing the thing. Good for you. You're witnessed because it's literally you're on a stage in front of a group people. of people. And if, even if there's no one else there, there's the actor there sharing that experience with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the sense of group connection, knowing that everybody else who's there is also crying and a mess because they've all had that experience too. And yes. you're like, yes, all of us, one of us, <laughs> one of us. And you are clearly part of the mass of humanity that is this universal experience that we all share. So if you cried while you heard me crying while I did the thing. <laughs> it's so good for you. You're welcome. You're <laughs> Congratulations. You're part of humanity. In case you and if know. you didn't, you're also part of humanity. And if you didn't, you're also part of humanity. Like, congratulations either way. Like, feelings are real and your experience is valid no matter what it was. If it was different from somebody else's, that just means that you're different from somebody else. And that's a good thing. In all our unity, we're also diverse. So can you, I know there were five things, but I could not at this point, like, list what they were. So let's list them. One. Recognizing emotion. Emotions are real, too. Uh, An outlet for the emotions. Process them, complete the stress response cycle. Yes. Go through the tunnel. Yeah. Remapping past experiences. Remapping past, so reconstructing them. Reconstructing them and actually building new Bushwhacking through a new pathway. Yeah, literally new neural pathways. So feelings are real. Get them out. Move them out. And then build new pathways. Yes. Um, The sensation of being witnessed. Be witnessed because connection and the bubble of love. And the experience of group connection. And group connection. And they're all interlocking and overreaching and intersecting. Right. Yeah. None of them exists in separate from the others. They're all connected. And the puppy's barking at our neighbor. So sorry about that. Yeah. So here's two contrasting stories. The first one I'm going to tell about myself when I was in my master's program at Westminster Choir College, where, oh my God, the feelings at Westminster, all we do is feelings. Like I literally took no music theory classes such that when I went to my doctoral program, I had to take remedial music theory. All we learned is conducting technique and core literature and feelings. Westminster is so much about the feelings. Everyone in the school goes and sings together in choir for an hour four days a week. We sing together as a school four hours a week. And that builds this sense of group connection that is really unique. So in this gigantic choir, it's called symphonic choir, where we all rehearse four hours a week together, an hour a day, four days a week. We're singing the Brahms Requiem, which if you didn't know, is my favorite piece of music and still makes me cry a lot even when I talk about it. So this is a hard story to tell. So I was really depressed my first semester at Westminster. I mean, literally having a depressive episode for which I got medicated. So this story has a happy ending. But where I was at in that moment of that rehearsal, sitting in the back row of the Soprano 2 section, me and 80 other Sopranos, right, in a room full of 300 people all singing the same thing. And the movement, the second movement is about the fragility and the frailty of humanity. The, the flower, the humanity is as grass and we wither like the bloom. Um, and then in the middle, there's this aber, this henwort bleibet, like, but the word of God is eternal. So it's this really dark, soft, sad beginning about hopelessness and fatigue and despair and entropy. And then it turns on a dime, like just whoo-choom. Right, this big, huge thing. So I'm sitting in rehearsal, just sobbing. 
And the soprano two next to me like reaches over and strokes my back like I'm a little puppy dog. Like, it'll be okay. I mean, like, it's fine. I mean, like I'm in the middle of rehearsal. I'm surrounded by singers. Did I ever perform that way? Did it ever bring me to tears in performance? It did not. Because performance is a different animal. You you kind of put on a, I mean, it's really real, but it's also has a polish on it where you kind of remove some of that rawness. You, you, you narrow the aperture so you don't get the flood in a performance. So it's just what you need and not too much. Um, but in rehearsal, man, that aperture got busted the fuck open. And how much of that was about being in the room with those other singers? And how much of it was about thinking, oh my God, Brahms totally gets me. I love Johannes Brahms. He's my boyfriend now and uh, I need to marry him. He never did get married. So like he would totally marry me because he clearly understands exactly who I am and what my life is like. He's strumming my pain with his fingers. So that sense of connectedness to the music itself, to the composer 150 years ago who composed it, to those people in that room, to that kind soprano too. It's okay, Amelia. Like, well, I'm so sorry, soprano too, for putting you through that. But like, it's Westminster. We all cried in rehearsal. It was a thing, right? So how much of that is about being witnessed and having an audience versus just going through the experience? And what's the result of that? The result was, I was like, I need to get on medication right now, which I did, so yay. Uh, going through the process creates in the end a performance that gives me the capacity to reach as deep as I need to and no deeper for stage for the ticket buying audience, but also that gives me the opportunity to dig through that pain and come to a new place that was, you know, actually sane and stable and not clinically depressed. So now I'm gonna prompt Emily to tell a story about a thing that she never had an audience to see, that she made, but no one's ever going to read. Oh, yeah. so for the record, I genuinely didn't know what she was gonna say. So what she's talking about is the novel that I wrote at the same time that we were writing Burnout. So the thing is when you write nonfiction, but it's about feelings, you have to be really selective and intentional about the feelings that make it into the book and the feelings that are sort of left aside, like the, the slag off of like a metal refining process. And the slag has to go somewhere. So you work really hard to refine the emotion that shows up in the nonfiction. You put that document away for the day and then you're left with this like emotional slag in your body, all the stuff that didn't go anywhere. You spent the whole day narrowing the aperture so that all that ended up on the page was what was necessary to say this specific thing you wanted to say. And now what you've got left is this flood blockage behind the tight aperture and it like really wants to bust through. And there's a novelist named Haruki Murakami who wrote a book called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running in which he talks about the ways that uh, write for him novel writing but for whatever emotional artistic experience is uh, like a fugu fish. So the most delicious part of a fugu fish, this is a puffer fish, the most delicious part is right next to the most poisonous part. Oh, yeah. So the only way to get to the really best stuff is to go right next to the poison. Um, and very skilled, <laughs> professionally trained fugu chefs 
never hurt anybody because they're so good at it Mm -hmm. at just getting the delicious part and avoiding the poison. And it's only the amateurs who end up like poisoning themselves and their family, for Mm -hmm. example. And so he's like artistic expression is like that where like to get to the good part, you also sort of like have to like get right down next to the worst, darkest, most difficult part. And for him running, long distance running is what he does with the slag, with the gross crap that bubbles up. Like you cannot access the good stuff without also accessing the nightmare that lives inside all of our bodies. We would say that it's the abyss. Yeah. Um, And so what I did with my slag was I wrote a novel that will never be published. It is not publishable. (laughs) But my hero was an actor (laughs) who tells this story of Haruki Murakami. He burns out in his job because he runs out of ways to process his emotional slack. (laughs) And my heroine is a professor of comparative literature (laughs) who talks about this stuff in an intellectual way and has to learn how to do it with her body. Mm -hmm. She's also a survivor. Man, I put her through every traumatic thing that a person in a female body and or a woman's identity could possibly experience. You name it, I tortured her. How did, so our our agent Lindsay read this? How did she react? Uh, She was like, could you make it less, like like have this not be so bad? Could you, it's a little dark, yeah, she's a little dark. And I was like, no, it's not dark. It's real. It's (laughs) It's real. It's true. And it was. The thing is, I had chosen true things that actually happened to people I know, real stories I had received. And it was only in retrospect that I realized how completely this was just me having to, like, process these dark stories that were activated by the writing of the nonfiction. Like, I had to put it somewhere. And so I, I gave it to these characters. Yeah. And... I needed to write that book. Otherwise, it could have ended up in burnout or it could have ended up in you. Right. Or in my marriage or yeah. in you. And yeah. like, yeah. you still don't know what those stories are because yeah, I'm not going to tell you. I don't want to know. Yeah, no. I don't want to know. So, I have my own shit to deal with. Right, yeah. So, so That's what I did. Nobody ever witnessed it and nobody ever will. So I wanted the end of this episode to get pretty dark and to go pretty deep into the, you know, the painful places. Well done. Yay, mission accomplished. That's the Mission Impossible theme. It's in five. Anyway, I wanted to the end of the episode to go like pretty deep and dark into the places where art can go because that's the power of what art can do. So I thought, let's fucking do it, man. And we we did. Well done. (laughs) Um, So art can help you recognize emotions are real and it can help you discern what they actually are. Mm -hmm. Am I angry right now? Am I sad right now? What do I feel? Get Do it. Do something artistic and figure it out. It is an outlet for those emotions. It can help you remap. Feelings are tunnels. You have to go through the darkness to get to the light at the end. Yeah. So. And it also moves the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. You can uh, Remapping means moving the tunnel. Um, it gives you a chance to be witnessed. It gives you a sense of connection to the group. All of these things are biologically really good for your body, really good for your emotions, really good for, this is really good. Art's good for you. You should it's do something. Good for you. It is like vegetables. Yeah. Feelings are, they, sometimes it's a little painful, a little hard, but like. Yeah. You know, vegetables are high in fiber. Yeah. It's, it's a little hard to digest, but the the difficulty in digesting is what makes it so very good for you. Art is spinach for your heart. Spinach for your heart. Yeah. For your feels. Let's let's quote Carrie Fisher now. She says, take your broken heart. Turn it into art. Yeah. 
Um, so, uh, so art's good for you, and I want to talk about why and how. So hopefully now you can, think, thing. you can think of the things that you do that already accomplish this. You don't have to add new stuff to your life. You know, I should really take up singing and join a choir. I mean, you should take up singing and join a choir. But you don't have to do anything new. You don't do have to do anything that you're not all automatically already drawn to. Yeah. But I bet there's something that you do in your life already that mm, allows you to feel some of this stuff that gives you this sense. So maybe understand how valuable that is it's not just a hobby it's not just like a a thing you do for fun it is a hobby and a thing you do for fun but it can also be extremely therapeutic and most importantly it can help you manage the stress so you don't burn out this fucking year going through 2020 and the shit show it's going to be you can harness the power of the art that you make to help you survive this has been the art episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. If it was written, it was written by me and by... Emily. And any of the music you hear was written by me, and it was all edited by Emily's marital euphemism. You can follow us on social media at FSP2020 uh, on Twitter and Instagram, and you can email us. What's the email address? Feminist Survival Project 2020 at gmail.com. Yeah. Link is in our link tree bio through Instagram. Yeah. So uh, let us know, what do you do for creative self-expression? Is it a thing you've been doing since you were young? Did you figure out when you were older? Did you ever go to a dark place and realize how good it was for you that you had access to this, this creative self-expression? Or have you gone to a dark place and thought maybe that meant this wasn't good for you and avoided it because you didn't know how that you were going through the tunnel and this was so good for you? Yeah. You're like, oh my God, I'm in a tunnel. This must be bad. No. The tunnel is good. As when you, you make your way when out. When you make your way out. But art can help you do that. And can you tell us about a time when you used art to get you through the end of the tunnel? Whether it was by yourself, alone at a computer, or over your knitting needles, or it was on a stage in front of a thousand people. Let us know. And thanks for listening. Look at me, 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 look at me. <laughs>